Joseph, the account of Joseph. And if, you, if you're like me, um, when you hear Joseph, you probably think of that dopey musical um, that always seemed to be around when we were younger. Um, I think whatever else that musical does, it does bring some of the dramatic force of this story to light. It is a dramatic story. It's, it's a bit like a coming-of-age story. I don't know about you, I like coming-of-age films. Something about that attracts me and interests me. It's some, a young man's passage through life until he reached maturity, reaches maturity. And this is, in many ways, a coming-of-age story. It's about a godly young man, a young man who went through enormous suffering and persecution and honoured God and was exalted and honoured by God at the end of the story. And like a lot of good films, I'm going to start with the ending of the story first. You know those films that have the ending at the beginning, then you have the whole backstory, and then you, you kind of finish off at the end. That's what I'm going to try to do tonight. Joseph was part of a large and dysfunctional family. There were 12 sons in the family from four different mothers. Now, this is a bit like a Ukrainian Baptist family. Ukrainian Baptists always have large families and lots of sons and daughters. Not from four wives, no, from one wife. And um, all those sons become pastors in the church, usually. The, the, the pastor father sends all his sons to be pastors in different villages. But Jacob, the, the father in this story, he had a huge family, 12 sons. And he had some daughters as well. These men were shepherds. They worked in the fields. They scratched out a living from the desert, from the wilderness, going to where the, the pastures were to feed their flocks. They were probably quite a wealthy family. And they were an illustrious family because the head of the family was Jacob, of course, the grandson of Abraham the man of God, to whom God had given all these promises. But when we meet Joseph in this story, we find that his world has just collapsed. He set out that morning to meet his brothers, a favoured son of a prosperous father, and he's terribly ill-treated. He's put into a cistern, a dry pit, which was used previously for storing water in the desert. It was probably full of slime, it was dark, and he was left there to languish and rot by his brothers, not knowing what they were about to do to him, what they planned for him. He cries out for mercy. You can imagine him crying out, plaintive cries to his brothers, particularly to his favorite brothers. Reuben, can you hear me? Get me out. What are you doing to me? He was shocked and confused. He hadn't expected this. He hadn't seen it coming at all. There's a wonderful kind of guilelessness and innocence about Joseph in this story. He doesn't really seem to know, um, he doesn't seem to expect this kind of treatment from his brothers in any way. And then to make it worse, his brothers sit down to eat the food that he's probably brought them from the father. They eat this food while he's crying out in anguish to be delivered, to be rescued, to be, to be saved from this pit. The crux of my argument tonight the way I've chosen to kind of do this, it might not be success, I don't know, you can judge that. The way I've done this is I want to make a case that Joseph did not deserve the treatment that his brothers meted out to him. The kind of received wisdom that I've, I've heard in church all my life and other Christians tell me about is that Joseph was a kind of arrogant young man who deserved everything he got. He was, he was, you know, he was kind of prickly, he was arrogant, he was obnoxious, he was a telltale. And therefore, we can quite easily sympathize with the brothers who hated him so. 
But my job tonight is to very briefly, famous last words, is to give you, to kind of vindicate Joseph and to show that I believe he was an innocent man, a young man, a godly young man. He wasn't sinless, but he was innocent and blameless um, with regards to his brothers and the punishment, the, the wickedness they, they showed towards him. My job is to kind of re- rehabilitate Joseph and say, I believe that he was an innocent man. And that's very important later when we understand the implications of this story. The question is, why did Joseph end up in this pit? Why was he there languishing in this cistern in the desert? Well, the first reason we find in the text is in verse 2. Turn with it to me. Turn with me to it. In the verse 2, we read this. Joseph brought their father, Jacob, a bad report about the brothers. So Joseph had been out to see his brothers, tending their sheep, and he'd brought a bad report back to his father about them. What was it that they were doing which was so bad that Joseph felt compelled to go back and bring this report to his father? Now, I don't know about you, but I think these brothers are a pretty sort of like rough bunch of men, like a bunch of cowboys. You know, I was reading recently one of Daniel's Wild West books about cowboys in these kind of frontier towns in America. And these you know, hard-drinking, rough kind of men who just eke out a hard living from the land. We don't know what it was, but Joseph saw something which displeased him. I don't know what it was. Perhaps they were fighting amongst themselves. Perhaps they were chasing girls. Perhaps they were, I don't know, playing cards, whatever the equivalent was in those days. But he goes back and tells his father about their behavior. And we don't know exactly what happened. We can, we can assume they got into trouble with the father when they got back. Was Joseph an obnoxious, telltale little brat, as he's so often portrayed by people? When I was younger, I've got two younger brothers, and they were only too glad to tell tales about me when I was growing up to my parents. True or false. But I don't think there's any suggestion here that Joseph was lying about his brothers, and there's no suggestion he was just trying to get them into trouble for the sake of it because he didn't like them. It seems likely that Jacob sent Joseph out to see how they were getting on. If you look at verse 14, Joseph is sent out again at a later stage. The father says, go and see if all is well with your brothers and and with the flocks and bring word back to me. So it's very likely that that Jacob has sent Joseph out on a mission to find out how the brothers are doing. And he goes there and he finds them behaving in ways which are not worthy, which are not godly, which are not honoring to the father, neglecting their work, whatever it might have been. And Joseph is compelled to go back to his father and tell the truth about what he's seen. Leviticus 5 verse 1 says this. Let me quickly turn to it. If a person sins because he does not speak up when he hears a public charge to testify regarding something he has seen or learned about, he will be held responsible. So it's enshrined in the law of Israel that if someone were asked about something they'd seen, that they should tell the truth and testify to what they'd seen. And when Joseph got back, his father asked him, how is it with your brothers in the desert? And he said, quite truthfully, father, I've seen something which you would not be pleased about. He's simply stating facts. He's not making up anything. He's not embellishing it. He's not trying to tell tales. He's just honoring his father by telling the truth. 
If anything, this shows Joseph's righteousness and his love for his father. I think this comes across very strongly. Joseph loves his father. He honors his father. And the brothers do not honor their father and have precious little love for their father. They're unscrupulous. They don't love him. They're not, they're not intent to honor him in any way. We find out later the brothers were only too happy to lie to their father and cause him distress or to deceive him. What a wicked thing to do, to deceive your own father, make him believe that his own son had been savaged and consumed by a wild beast. But if the brothers, ponder this, if the brothers had not been doing anything wrong in the desert, they would have had nothing to worry about, would they? If they'd been you know, doing their job properly and Joseph turned up, he would have found nothing to report bad about them. If you're a drug dealer on the level, you've got every reason to be concerned about the police who are snooping around trying to find, you, find out what you're doing. But if you're innocent, you're just walking your dog on the level, you've got nothing to worry about. The police will not pay any attention to you. It's an important principle. If these, these men had been innocent and doing nothing wrong, there would have been no problem. And Joseph would have, would have gone back with a good report. So who is really to be blamed here? Is it Joseph for telling the truth? Or is it the brothers for their whatever it was, bad behavior in the desert. The truth is, Joseph was not like his brothers, was he? He was different. He was, he was cut from a different cloth. He was a different kind of man with a different kind of spirit. Those men were wicked and lazy and violent. Joseph was righteous. We find out in the story of Joseph how much he honors God and how much God is with him. And the brothers are annoyed by him, and, he, and they're indignant with him because of his behavior, because of his standards, which are so high, because of his love for the Father. And they think it's strange, and they, they become irritated by him and jealous of him. 1 Peter 4, verse 4 says this, because there's nothing new under the sun. Peter warns Christian people thus. He's talking about non-believers. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse on you the bible says clearly that non-believers often will find it very very strange that people should be godly and obey the lord's standards and seek to do his will and they think it very odd that you do not plunge with them to this kind of whole whole flood of bad behavior and moral turpitude It may be, friends, that you as a Christian person aggravate and annoy other people by your righteous life. A Christian should never ever seek to aggravate people or to annoy people or to be obnoxious with people. We're called to live in peace with all men as far as it depends on us. But I think the reality is that as Christian people seeking to live godly lives in a very ungodly city and society, we will at times find that we rub people up the wrong way people will be irritated and offended by the standards which we hold. And there's nothing that we, we, we do to try and cause that or to try and nurture that. It's just a fact. Imagine you're at work and you're in the staff room full of colleagues. You know the kind of banter that goes on in staff rooms, you know, kind of bad language and in, you know, bawdy kind of speech, which is no place for a Christian. And imagine you're there and you, you can't participate in that especially if you're a man. I think it's particularly difficult when you're surrounded by men. You're not swearing. You're not talking about women. You know what I mean. People will look at you and think there's something very strange about you. Some people might respect you. 
Some people might say, well, there's something different about you and I find it attractive, but others might be completely repulsed by that and say, well, who do you think you are? Do you think you're better than us? And they hate you without a reason. If you're fair and honest in your job, you don't steal from the company or cut corners and don't badmouth the boss. And other people do that as a matter of course. They may look at you and why, why don't you do what we're doing? Do you think you're better than us? Who do you think you are? And I, I don't know about you, but I've certainly experienced that in my life at certain times. Not all the time, but at certain times. And friends, sometimes this even, even happens in churches as well. Before I was a Christian, when I was in my early 20s, late teens, I was a kind of professing Christian, but not really a Christian. I wasn't born again. I had never repented of my sin. And I came across some biblical Christians who loved the Lord and loved his word and had very high standards of conduct. Do you think I was attracted by those people? No, I wasn't. I was, I was threatened by these people. I, for what religious people? What pharisaical people, holier than now? Who do they think they are with these very high standards? They won't do the things that I do, and I'm a Christian. That's what I believed. We need to be careful, don't we, that we don't see someone who's more godly than we are, who has higher standards than we, we have. We, we write them off somehow, some kind of you know, fanatic who takes things far too seriously. We, don't, we sort of start to resent them and get angry about them because they have such high standards of living. Now, we do need to watch ourselves that we don't become, you know, sanctimonious, priggish kind of people that, you know, you know, there's a kind of unattractive kind of behavior that sometimes you can have, sort of holier than now, looking down your nose and others. I'm not like those bad people. I'm not talking about that at all. But if you are a Christian who means to serve the Lord and means to be godly, even amongst professing Christians at times, you will find people despise you and think you're taking it far too seriously. They hate you without a reason. Cain murdered Abel because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. And there's something about a righteous life which annoys people and offends people who have far lower standards. And they, they see you as a threat. And we need to be very aware of this and be careful. We, we need to expect this in a way. Outside the church, inside church. I mean, hopefully it won't happen inside the church, but you never know. I think particularly in liberal churches. Liberal churches will look at us and say, what a bunch of Pharisees in that Calvary church. You know, how, how dare they take it so seriously? And they get angry with us. We just need to be aware of these things, don't we? This is reality. That's why per- Christians are persecuted in the world. One of the reasons people hate Christians, not because Christians are bad citizens, not because they don't pay their taxes, not because they cause rebellions or blow up people, but because they're, they're good workers and diligent people and honorable people and good citizens. People despise them because something about that godly living annoys people and offends people and exposes people and, and threatens people. Think about Jesus. And all this points to Jesus. His righteous life aggravated people. His godly living and his conduct made so many enemies. And you think, how can that be possible? Such a godly, wonderful man who helped people and served people and laid down his life for people. How could he aggravate people and annoy people and make so many enemies? Well, there's this verse, isn't there? Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. The truth is that 
People who, who are so in love with their sin will never come into the light because it aggravates them. It exposes them. It makes them feel very vulnerable. And that's why people do not come to Jesus. And he aggravated, he, he annoyed so many people. And the question is, does he aggravate you? I mean, if you're a Christian, surely he doesn't. But if you're a non-Christian, there are people who are absolutely furious when you mention the name of Jesus and his kind of moral standards. Why should they hate those things so much? It's because they love their sin. And to be honest, all, all of us at one point in our lives, we were like that as well, weren't we? We loved our sin. It was normal and natural for us. We refused to come to Jesus because we loved our sin so much we knew it would mean repenting of our sin and turning away from it. And if you're in that place tonight that somehow something about Jesus offends you and annoys you because his, his righteousness is there, because his standards are so high, I suggest you really deal with that and grapple with that. Why is it I'm so concerned about coming into the light, coming amongst Christian people, coming under the teaching of his word? So that was the first reason. So Joseph was hated by his brothers because, because he was righteous, because he, he told their father a report about their behavior. The second reason they hated him was favoritism. Verse 3 says this, Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. I want you to know that in Hebrew, apparently, this doesn't say he was born to him in his old age. It says he was the son of old age, apparently. I've always taken this to mean that Joseph was born when, when Jacob was very old. And you know what it's like when somebody's old, older and they have a child. Often that child is very dear to them, particularly dear. But actually this verse could mean something rather different. Son of old age could mean very well um, a wise head on young shoulders. I heard someone say that the other day about somebody. That person's got a wise head on young shoulders. Old age, that Joseph was, was actually exceptionally mature for his age. He was 17, but he was, he was somehow a cut above his brothers, a cut above the rest. And perhaps there's a very good reason why, why Jacob loved him more than the others. It wasn't because he just, it was arbitrary, he just happened to like him more. It could be very well that Joseph was so mature that, that Jacob spotted this and made him a kind of overseer over his brothers. And that's perhaps why um, he was sent to go and see the brothers in the fields, to kind of see how they were getting on. He was an overseer. Well, I can't prove that, but that's, that's a possibility. And Joseph, we find, was given this decorative robe, this kind of famous coat of many colors. It could just mean a long-sleeved robe. A robe is a sign of honor in the Bible. In 2 Samuel 13, verse 18, this was the robe that the virgin daughters of the king would wear, the princesses. It had you know, a symbol of great prestige. We also think about another man, Jesus Christ, who was given a robe, wasn't he? He was mocked by Herod many years later. We can have some sympathy with the brothers, can't we? Somehow we can, we can understand what it's like to be jealous of somebody who's favored by a parent. But Joseph should not be blamed for this. There's no indication that he sought this. He didn't kind of nurture this. He didn't ask for this. He didn't try to be like a teacher's pet with his father, sucking up to his father and trying to get this favor. There's no indication of that at all. He just lived his righteous life, and his father saw something in him, and he blessed him, and he honored him. He gave him this robe, this symbol of authority. Perhaps it was a chain of office, kind of, you know, a badge of office. One of my uncles is a mayor. Did you know that? He's a mayor of a town in Leicestershire, and um, he's got a chain to wear to show everyone he's a mayor. 
I've never actually seen it because I haven't seen him for a long time, but he, he wears this chain, I've seen a picture of it, and you can tell straight away he's a mayor. And perhaps this robe that, jo- that Joseph got was a kind of badge of office to show that he was a favoured son in a, in a position of authority over the brothers. But if, to be honest, if Jacob had loved Joseph more simply because he did, why were they so angry about this? If the brothers had loved their father, surely they would have understood he's, he's mourning his beloved wife, Rachel. And this is the son of Rachel. We, we can kind of bear with this old man and understand how, how difficult it is for him and how when he sees Joseph, he sees his wife in Joseph's features. But they didn't love their father at all. But also, Jacob is to be blamed more than Joseph. Jacob was very foolish in this matter. Think about his family history. You know, his, his, the account of Jacob and Esau, how his mother loved Jacob more than Esau and favoured him. And that deception with their father, with the goat, you know, the, the skins to pretend he was Esau to get the birthright. And then there were his two wives, Rachel and Leah. And that these two have been kind of jealous rivals at each other's throats the whole time. And that very plaintive thing we read about in Genesis where Leah has a, has a baby. She says, surely my husband will love me now because I've had a baby. She said that more than once. Surely my husband will love me now because I've had a baby. An insecure, neglected woman by her husband because he loved his other wife more. Jacob should have learned these lessons, shouldn't he? He should have learned that favoritism never leads to anything good. But he just couldn't help himself when it came to Joseph. And friends, it's very important as Christian people that we learn lessons from the past, isn't it? There may be traits in your family, there are certainly traits in my family which I see passed down from generation to generation because we simply cannot learn from the mistakes of our forefathers. And if that's true in your family, you might see a kind of pattern emerging. You need to make sure that you're the person that breaks that pattern in your generation and doesn't pass it on to your children if you have any. Think about family politics. Think about families that are divided because of this kind of petty jealousy and favoritism. And fathers, if you show favoritism to your children, you could be causing trouble for many years, which will go down throughout the generations. Think about how often when a, when a will is read and there's some kind of dispute, acrimonious dispute between members of the family because they, I wanted this and father promised me this and he was always your favourite. How unedifying and how foolish and how sad. And if there are children here tonight, there's one or two, be, be very aware of jealousy. Be very cautious about jealousy, envy, never leads to anything good. It leads to destruction, it breaks up families, it destroys lives. Look at what it led to in this story. Hatred, attempted murder, well murder didn't actually take place in the end, but the next best thing happened, the next worst thing, should we say. The story of Joseph points us to Jesus. Jesus is like Joseph, he's like the beloved son of a father. He has a special relationship with the father. What did God say? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. There's that beautiful relationship between the son and the father. Jesus has a unique relationship with God. And Jesus proves this by his special abilities, by the power that God gives him. Joseph had a robe to show that he was the favorite. And Jesus had the ability to do all these miracles and the power of God was at work in him to give evidence that he was the favored one. What happened to Jesus? Just, just, as, just as with Joseph, the brothers were infuriated by him and hated him and were jealous. What happened to Jesus? The very same, did it not? 
People were infuriated by Jesus. They hated him without a cause. They were jealous of him. Jesus claims that special relationship and people were absolutely furious. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is in Mark's Gospel where Jesus stands before the high priest. And he says, the high priest asks him under oath, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? The whole thing goes silent as they wait for Jesus to reply. And he he lands that devastating blow, doesn't he? He says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tears his robes. He's spoken blasphemy. How dare he say this? Jesus is claiming to be the Son of Man prophesied in the book of Daniel, riding on the clouds, sitting at the right hand of power, having that special favored relationship with the Father. And those men, they cannot countenance this. They're absolutely livid question for you if you're not a Christian does he make you indignant does he infuriate you I I meet plenty of people all week long who are infuriated by Jesus they don't like this idea that Jesus has a special relationship to the Father that somehow he's the only way to God he's the the only way that can person that can bring us to God into a relationship with him I think people are very happy to accept Jesus as a kind of good man or a prophet even, but to say, no, he's more than a prophet, my dear Muslim friend. He's more than, well, the Jews would say he was a deceiver. He's more than that. He's far more than that. He's the one that brings us to God. He has a special favor relationship. God's seal of approval is upon him. If it were not, he would not have been raised from the dead. That resurrection of Christ is like a seal, like a stamp of God's approval, that this payment for sin has been accepted, that every word that Christ said was true. And it's a glorious thing. So we, we, I urge you if, you, if this is you listening to this, don't be indignant about Jesus, about his special claim to relationship with the Father, about, about the favor that God has given him, but rather accept it and rejoice in it. So that was point number two. Joseph was hated because of the favoritism that the Father showed him. Moving swiftly on. The third reason the brothers hated him was because of his dreams. The famous dream. So there's two dreams in the story which are pregnant with meaning. Turn with me to verses 6 and 7. So the first dream, Joseph says, We were binding sheaves of corn out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered round mine and bowed down to it. And there was another dream as well in verse 9. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. So Joseph wakes up, probably I imagine, I, just, I have a picture of them in some kind of dormitory, sort of twelve men all snoring away together. And probably didn't smell too good. And Joseph wakes up, having had these dreams, and he just can't wait to tell his brothers about these dreams he's had. And to be fair, they do sound quite outrageous, don't they, these dreams? Like the sun, moon and stars bowing down to me. But you know what, friends, as someone who dreams a lot, and I don't, never have any meaningful dreams, they're all kind of nonsense, but as someone who dreams a lot, you can't control your dreams, can you? You can't sort of program yourself before you go to bed to dream a certain thing. You just dream whatever comes into your head. The human mind is a mystery. Joseph didn't ask for these dreams. He didn't even interpret them. Later, he would, inter- it ha- he would have the gift of interpretation. There's no, no evidence here that, that Joseph interpreted these dreams in any way. He didn't say to his brothers, well, that must mean you're going to bow down to me one day. He didn't say that at all. 
I think he was just stating what he saw. He's a kind of naive, guileless young man. He wakes up, has this dream, and says, guess what, guys, this is what I've heard. I saw in the dream last night. When I have a vivid dream, I always wake Anya up and tell her, but she's usually you know, up long before me anyway, doing stuff. But I have this vivid dream. I, I want to tell someone, and that's what the brothers did here. That's what Joseph did to the brothers. But in those days, they also believed that dreams were divine messages. We see so often in the Old Testament that God spoke to people through dreams. So it's quite possible that Joseph said, listen guys, I've had this really vivid dream and I believe it could be from the Lord. What do you think it means? In a kind of very innocent way. We shouldn't assume that he was trying to kind of belittle them or make them feel bad. I don't think he was. Look at verse 8. The brothers really get angry at this point. Do you intend to reign over us? Well, when did he say he intended to reign over them? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he'd said. Why didn't those brothers ponder the meaning of the dream? Why didn't they go away and ponder it? So well, perhaps it is from the Lord. Perhaps the Lord gave him this dream. What could it possibly mean? If it's from God, who are we to argue? But the kind of men they were, they wouldn't do that, would they? They wouldn't listen. They wouldn't even consider the notion that it could be from God. And have you noticed the other thing as well? They, kind of, they balk at this idea that somehow bowing down to Joseph will be a bad thing. It will be humiliating for them. Now, I don't know if you've ever bowed down to anybody. I've never bowed down to anybody really in my life. But bowing down to somebody is an act of humiliation, isn't it? You, you humble yourself. It's a kind of very striking picture of humbling yourself before someone. But why, is it, why should it be such a bad thing to bow down to somebody? Actually, we find out later in the story, they bowed down to Joseph and it, actually, it served them well that they bowed down to him because they bowed down to him and received mercy and God blessed them. So actually, bowing down to Joseph would be for their good, ultimately, but they saw it as a very negative thing that they could not even picture or consider. Were these brothers humble men who were simply outraged that any of them should have the temerity to say that one day he would reign over them? Well, no, very, very similarly to those kind of 12 men later on, we read about in the New Testament, those 12 disciples, they were concerned about their own prestige and privilege and positions. Joseph, the second youngest in the family, has this dream and makes out he's going to rule over us. They weren't, they weren't saying, oh, you shouldn't, none of us should ever say that, that's completely outrageous. They, they probably all had their, their idea that they should be the most important. Even Jacob, in verse 10, rebukes Joseph. So he, ta- he goes too far. He says, um, Joseph sa- Jacob says, What is this dream you had? Will you, your mother and, mother and I actually, and your brothers actually bow down, come and bow down to the ground before you? So even, even Jacob, so this is a step too far. When he talks about his mother, he's talking about Leah, who was, who was his stepmother, who was still alive. But Jacob, to his credit, goes away and ponders these things. Look at verse 11. His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. That's very reminiscent, isn't it, of Mary when it says she treasured up all these things in her heart. She went away and pondered these things. So Jacob knew only too well that God speaks through dreams. Do you remember that dream? I haven't got time to go into it in chapter 28 where Jacob had this famous dream and God spoke to him about the land and the descendants and the blessing and the fact that all nations on earth will be blessed through him. That's actually a very important part of this story. 
So Jacob realizes that there could be something in this. It's worth pondering and not dismissing just like that. Now, to bring this down to us as Christian people, the Bible says very clearly that God does not show favoritism. God doesn't have favorite children. But God does bless people in different ways, for different purposes. And if God chooses to raise up someone in some way for his own purposes and own glory, who are we to argue about this? Why do we get proud and offended so easily when somebody else is favoured and raised up in a particular way? Sometimes I look back to when I was studying um, years and years ago in Reading on the course I was doing, and there were loads of people on that course, and some of them, I look at them now, I hear about them, some of them are kind of, you know, already pastors of large churches, lots of people. And I think to myself, hmm, they're much younger than me, and they, they kind of, they've done so well for themselves, and what am I doing wrong? I think to myself, that's really worldly and pathetic, isn't it? If God has chosen to raise up somebody else and put them in a position, why on earth should, we, should I be jealous or envious of them or look and say in a kind of regretful way as though somehow God was kind of denying me something. Envy is a cancer. Envy is destructive. I'm sure each of you, maybe you're more godly than me, but you you can think of examples in your life where you look at somebody else and you think, why has God blessed that person? What have they done to deserve this? And God says, Who are you to object if I raise someone up to prominence for my glory, for my purposes, which you cannot possibly begin to understand? You may understand later. The brothers hated the idea of bowing down to Joseph, simply refused to countenance it. Men and women refuse to bow the knee to Christ, don't they? They said, we don't want this man to rule over us. And that, friends, is the crux. That is the reason why people do not believe in Jesus. The main reason. There are lots of reasons. The main reason is not lack of evidence, lack of proof. People cite that as an example. That's not the real reason. The reason is a heart reason. I don't want this man to rule over me. I don't want to bow the knee to him. Who is he to, to, who, who is he to tell me what to do, to be Lord over my life? This basic rebellion is at the the heart of the human condition, which is why we have so many problems, which is why our society is so sick. People refuse to bow to Christ. It's not a new problem. It's a timeless problem. What does the word say? Psalm 2, kiss the son lest he should be angry. Make peace with God. Bow the knee to him. Submit to Christ. Put your trust in him. Believe in him. Receive mercy. Receive forgiveness. If you do this, he will gladly pardon you and receive you bowing the knee to him is not some horrific thing that you'd rather not do he's so glorious so beautiful so powerful so worthy that bowing down to him when your eyes are open is the most natural thing to do the most beautiful thing to do to worship him and revere him and honor him and our prayer is as a church as calvary church that people in this city many people would come to bow the knee to christ to do what Joseph's brothers refused to do, to bow to him. They did bow one day, and one day every knee will bow to Christ. When he is exalted, every one of us will bow to him. Every person out there will bow to him. Every deceived person who follows a false religion will bow to him. Every atheist will bow to him. When he is exalted, he will be seen in his glory, and every knee will bow. That is inevitable. That is God's sovereign will. That will happen, whether men like it or not. Better today to bow the knee to him while there's still time.
was that the end of Joseph? Let's pick up the story again. So time marches on as, as usual. So I want to put it to you very strongly that Joseph is not some, some horrible little boy who just winds up his brothers and gets what he deserved. I believe he's an innocent man, a righteous man, and a powerful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. We call this a type. In the Old Testament, we see characters. They're not just there for, for no reason. They're recorded for us so that we might learn, that we might look at them and see a picture of Christ. And there are so many parallels in this story that point us to the Lord Jesus. Joseph was hated without a cause. Jesus quotes that himself in John 15. He says, they hated me without a cause. I don't know if I've convinced you that he was, he was righteous and innocent, but I believe he was. He may well have been a bit obnoxious, but generally speaking, he was an innocent person who didn't deserve the suffering he faced. Finally, an opportune time came. Does that ring any bells? An opportune time came? Just like with Jesus. Remember the, par- the parable Jesus told, the tenants in the vineyard, this is the heir, let's get rid of him, out of sight of the master, the landlord. Out there in the desert, Joseph comes with the food, the provisions, to see how his brothers are getting on. They, they see him coming, they, see, they recognize his coat, and they say, here comes the dreamer, here comes the master of dreams. That's what it means. Dripping with sarcasm and irony, you know. This is the heir, this is, this is the favored one, let's get rid of him, let's see what becomes of his dreams. Now, by God's grace, Joseph wasn't actually killed, was he? He could have been easily killed then by the brothers. But God had other plans. Reuben tries to save him in verse 21 to his credit. Where's that? Let's turn to that. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. And he has this idea, throw him into the cistern in the desert. And Reuben wants to come back later and take him back to the father. He's he's the oldest son. He's trying to um, redeem himself in the eyes of his father. So Joseph's put in this, in this pit, and you can imagine their grinning faces and mocking laughter as he's lowered down. He's crying out for mercy. At that point, they just didn't care. They wanted to get rid of him. Later on in the book of Genesis, we'll come to this another week, the brothers say something which proves they struggle with this for the next 25 years. This incident stayed with them. It haunted them. They said, um, we are truly guilty concerning our brother. For we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us and we would not hear. So there was an anguish in Joseph, a, a torment. Can you imagine what it must be like to be betrayed by your own brothers? Completely for no reason at all, just because they hate you for no reason. In God's providence, a caravan of traders was passing by in verse 25. Midianites, or Ishmaelites as it says here. They're on their way down to Egypt. And in God's providence, just at that moment, they were passing by so he wouldn't be killed. They have this brainwave, this idea, let's sell him to the, the Ishmaelites, let's get some money as well. Why should we kill him? Judah spares his life. Judah says, well, after all, he is our own flesh and blood. That's, to me, that's dripping with irony as well. He's our own flesh and blood. Let's not kill him. Let's sell him away to Egypt so we'll never see him again. But he's our own flesh and blood. Let's not kill him. You can imagine the brothers trying to strike a deal with the the traders, bargaining over their brother. You know, we'll give you this. No, this is not a good price. How humiliating, how sad to have that done to you. How horrific that someone would bargain for you, your own brothers, for your life. 
for 20, 20 shekels, eight ounces of silver. The brothers go back in verse 31. They deceive their father, don't they? They, they get the, his coat. They dip it in the blood of a goat. Interesting. I wonder who else was deceived by a goat. Think back to Jacob and Esau. History repeats itself. They go back to the father. They break his heart. He, he, he concludes that, they, that Joseph has been eaten by, by a wild animal. And all that's left of his coat. What a terrible tragedy. The brothers sit there with straight faces look at their father in the eye and say, this is what must have happened. They don't tell him the truth. You just wonder, how could they live with themselves? How could they sleep at night having done this? They must have seen that empty place at the table for years after. Joseph's place. Constant reminder of their treachery. But as for Joseph now, being taken to a foreign land, people speaking a different language, not knowing what was going to become of him. At least he had his life, but not much else been stripped of his royal robe and bound like a slave. He didn't know the outcome of the story like we do. We have the, the, the benefit of knowing the outcome of this story, and it's a good outcome. It's a happy ending. But he didn't know that. Did Joseph believe in the promise of this dream? Did Joseph understand that, that God meant to exalt him one day? We don't really know what he was thinking. But that, even if he had believed that, it must have seemed very unrealistic at that moment been taken away forever, as it seemed, to Egypt? Or did Joseph remember these dreams and hold on to this promise in these dreams that one day he would be exalted? Did these dreams carry him through those hard times? We see, we'll see over the next few weeks and months how this develops. Joseph's life is like a roller coaster. He goes up, seems to be exalted, then he goes down again. Through many dangers, toils and snares, did he hold on to this promise? I don't know. I don't know what he understood or what he believed. But one thing I do know is that he honoured God. And he could have railed at God and been angry at God. And his world had collapsed. It had all been stripped away just like that in the, in the blink of an eye. And yet he did not dishonour his Lord. And this, I, I think, friends, is the most important lesson of Joseph and the most important lesson of the Bible. One of the most important our God is a sovereign God. Our God gets what he wants. Through human sin, through human choices, somehow, miraculously, wonderfully, God achieves his purposes. God meant to exalt Joseph, one day to make him ruler of Egypt, that he might save his brothers, save the nation, save the world from starvation. But God used all kinds of sin and wickedness to achieve that to bring his, his man to the right place at the right time for the right purpose. And I want us to remember this as well, that God uses wicked men and wicked people, men and women, wicked people, to achieve his purposes. Those brothers, they meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. They were playing straight into God's hands. Isn't it wonderful to know that God's plans and purposes cannot be thwarted by human wickedness? Steve reminded us today, the world is in chaos and turmoil all around us. Everywhere we look, we see wickedness abounding in our communities, in the land, in the world, in every nation. Men rail against God, they deny him, they mock him, they persecute his servants. And yet we know, don't we, that our, our Lord Jesus will be on the throne, will be exalted and will be seen to be glorious and acknowledged universally. 
those men that crucified Jesus and put him on the cross, they believed they were getting rid of Jesus. They were wicked in what they did. They hated him. And yet they played right into God's hands. What they did was, was the very thing that God had predestined to happen, that Jesus would die on the cross to save sins, including the sins of those that crucified him, if they turned to him and believed. Those men did not destroy Joseph's dreams, but actually fulfilled them unwittingly. And I think this is a very comforting thought to hold on to in this chaotic world, perhaps in your chaotic life if you have one. There's an absolute futility in opposing God and his purposes. And God gets what he wants and what he, he ordains to happen will happen. And he'll use all kind of human sin and wickedness, whatever it might be, political, social, whatever turmoil, whatever acts people do to get his people to where he wants them to be. Genesis 45, verse 8. I'll just finish up now. Joseph says this. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. So Joseph says, it wasn't actually you at all that sent me. It was God that sent me to Egypt, using human means, wicked people. In Genesis 50, verse 20, he says this. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. I'm kind of giving you the end of the story. I shouldn't do that perhaps, but it's impossible because through this tragedy that happened to Joseph, this deeply distressing situation, through this persecution, God was working out his purposes. Because of that, because Joseph was able to save those people ultimately, the line, the promises that God had made to the patriarchs, that they would have a land, that they would have descendants, that all the nations of the world would be blessed through them. Because those people were spared, that line was able to continue. Had they all died and perished and starved to death, that line would not have continued. God would not, not have been faithful to his promise. God is working for the good of his servants, but he's also working out his own purposes of redemption, history, and salvation. That one day the seed would come, Jesus Christ, descendant of these men. Joseph is very aware at the end of the story that God would have used these men to achieve his purposes. But at the time, it must have been very difficult. In conclusion, all this points to Jesus. Like Joseph, a righteous man, a favoured son, sent by his father to his brothers, only to be persecuted by them. Whatever happened to Joseph happened far more to the Lord Jesus. He wasn't just put in a cistern. He wasn't just carted off to Egypt as a slave. We all know what happened to Jesus. Died on that cross. Died the most brutal death imaginable. Suffered more than any man. A man of sorrows. The brothers put Joseph in a pit. They took him out of the pit and sold him away. Jesus was put in that hole in the ground in the tomb. The tomb was sealed with a Roman guard. And his enemies believed that was the end of Jesus. That the, 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 kind of, the legend of Jesus would die with him. That they put, put an end to this troublesome man that they were so jealous of and hated so much. As we know, they fulfilled God's purposes. And that Christ came out of that tomb. And it wasn't the end of him. Just as it wasn't the end of Joseph, we see Joseph again exalted and raised up. So one day Jesus also will be raised up and exalted. Finally, a remark for Christians. In this life, you may go through many hardships and persecutions. I think we're spared the worst of it in this country, but we know for, for many Christians it's a reality. Who knows what life will bring? Remember, it's all, all in the sovereign hands of God. 
we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Perhaps you can't understand why this is happening to you. Maybe you will understand later. Maybe you'll never fully understand. If you're misunderstood and ill-treated by people because of your faith, because of Christ, remember those saints who went before you, including Joseph, who suffered so much, who were persecuted for righteousness' sake. Remember that there's a vindication, there is a promise that you will be exalted one day, whether in this life or the next. I mean, Christians all around the world are suffering, they've been persecuted, they've been put to death, not as heroes, but as, as you know, the scum of the earth of whom society is not worthy. They, just, just, they might as well just be disposed of because they're absolutely um, terrible people. They die ignominious deaths, quiet deaths away from the sight of people. Remember this, that the Christian's death is not always heroic. You might give your life, your life might end one day in some complete quiet corner, just losing your life for your faith in Christ. But it's not, you're not throwing it away for no reason. If you give your life for Christ, if you suffer for Christ, there's that promise that even if you die for him, there will be future glory and a blessing. That God will raise you up. He won't forget you. You can trust your eternity to him. That is the question. Can I trust my eternity to him? Like Joseph, can, can my life be full of struggle and hardship and pain and suffering for the sake of the gospel? Can I put up with this for the sake of a greater prize, knowing that God will exalt me, that God will vindicate me, that God will bless me one day? Trust in his promises. I think I've said enough. Let's pray. Mm-hmm.